0: In the final week before the State Duma's summer recess, Russian lawmakers rammed through some curious legislation, including several initiatives the authorities would apparently like to roll out now, before Putin's reelection campaign presumably kicks off in the fall. Notably, Duma deputies voted to adopt draft amendments that raise the maximum age for conscription, widening the army's demographic pool of men and adding an additional million and a half soldiers by 2025. Initially, military leaders talked about coupling this reform with a hike to the minimum age for conscription, raising it from 18 to 21. But lawmakers ditched the idea and kept the maximum age jump from 27 to 30. Deputies also abandoned early plans to make these changes gradually in phases. Another reform that slipped into the State Duma's last-minute legislative burst was an amendment that empowers the president to charge governors with the creation of special militarized formations during periods of mobilization, wartime, and martial law. These new groups controlled by the state, but separate from the military, will be yet another factor in Russia's complicated civil-military relations, a subject that's gained even more global attention in the aftermath of last month's mutiny by Yevgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner Group mercenaries. So let's talk about the specialized enterprises forged in this new legislation and explore what such a project says about the current relationship between the military and everything else in Russia. Welcome to the Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On today's show, we're welcoming back Kirill Shemyev, a Russian political scientist and a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He was on the show at the top of the month to talk about Prigozhin's mutiny, and clearly I just didn't get enough of him. So I begged him to return when I saw the news about these specialized military formations. But first, a few words about these groups as they're described in the legislation that's just passed the State Duma. They will assist law enforcement agencies and perform several tasks, including things like maintaining public order and ensuring public safety, sounds nice, defending Russia's borders, okay, and combating illegal armed formations and the sabotage reconnaissance groups of foreign states. When necessary, they are permitted to shoot down drones. So the next Ukrainian attack on Moscow or some other city could very well be their fault. This means, of course, that these men will be armed, presumably by the National Guard, and typically only to guard various government facilities. But the legislation does spell out rare circumstances where members of these formations can actually open fire on a crowd of people. And just as this legislation emerged from nowhere and sped through voting in the State Duma, Carnegie Politica published a fascinating essay by Kitoshimiev, titled, Suspensions, Detentions, and Mutinies, the Growing Gulf in Russia's Civil-Military Relations all about the trade-offs between loyalty and competence in the armed forces that the Kremlin has to juggle. When I spoke to Kirill, I started off with questions about his insights in this essay, and the conversation grew into a narrower look at the specialized formations that I described just a minute ago. At the core of your recent essay, you point out that a lot of people claim that the issues with Russian civil-military conflict it all just boils down to the President's preference for loyalty over competence. And this is what you often see when whenever the Russian military fails at anything. It's like, oh well, that's because Putin's like he's he meddles too much in the military and he doesn't he's just picking the, the loyal people and not picking the competent ones. And you argue that it's actually more complicated than that. why?
1: Just in terms of civil military relations, the most important aspect is to secure loyalty for armed personnel because these armed personnel is created and they're functioning for the state and on, on behalf of the state. And when you have especially troops with heavy weapons, if we even make a claim that they are disloyal, this is like a keggle of explosives under the political stability. So loyalty is always a priority for, well, I would say maybe for any more or less functional state because... As we say, like, as sometimes I say in Russian, net right? if you're a civilian or you don't have heavy weaponry, you can't do anything against a tank. So that's why loyalty is really important for when we think about civil military relations. But at the same time, the Kremlin wants to win the war, sometimes, somehow end it in preferable conditions. And for that, they need competence. They, for the commander-in-chief, there is a very difficult kind of balancing act between, on the one hand, ensure that everybody is loyal to him and to the state and they won't what Prigozhin did started a mutiny or rebellion but on the other hand build up their increase their effectiveness and sometimes as we know in order to increase effectiveness you need to fire some people or you know make some personal decisions or some decisions that would be unpopular so it's a really this is the art of politics and probably civil military relations this kind of balancing it out and finding a proper balance which i think well kremlin is uh is not so capable of, especially the Wagner's mutiny has shown us to us.
0: Would you say that the, I mean, this is maybe somewhat counterintuitive, but because the Russian military, it seems to be very worried about loyalty problems or disloyalty, I guess. Would it be fair to say that the Putin regime actually tolerates higher disloyalty in the military than maybe some democracies do? Because I mean, even the idea of, even the hint of a mutiny in the, for instance, the American military being insane. Whereas for months, Prigozhin was allowed to criticize the military, and it was there was obvious there was public infighting and so on, and Putin never intervened. So, I mean, from that perspective, you might even say, oh, well, Putin's actually got higher tolerance for disloyalty because he is so desperate for confidence. Is that a f- fair way of looking at it at all, or am I going off in a weird direction?
1: I would agree with you that in like democratic countries, when Prigozhin even... If Prigozhin said the first criticism toward the military in a democratic country, probably the federal prosecutor members of parliament would have already started an investigation, a hearing, and this this conflict would have been at least institutionalized, like channeled through proper institutional mechanism. And because Russia is a like personal dictatorship, it was all out in public, like a volcano, and mm-hmm. uh, no one could take uh, control over it. I think here with Putin, I think, well, it's a big, again, criminology, but in my view, he really, uh, considering that Trigozhin has been a uh, His long-lasting ally, he was trusting him, and also it was a bit useful for him because Wagner, his criticism brought, what we say in in academia, reduced information asymmetry. This criticism was bringing alternative information to the Kremlin in terms of the status of armed forces, what they do, and so on. And of course, they needed this force, as we remember, for the assault in Bakhmut. So from the operational perspective, probably the Kremlin was kind of trying to slow down as much as possible this kind of criticism and hoping that Prigozhin would do nothing about it, but politicians make mistakes in Russia's history. Well, there was a similar incident, just I'm now thinking of 1941, when uh, Stalin as like a personal dictator, was also the of lots of intelligence reports and everything, everyone was basically saying that the Germans would attack and Stalin did nothing and probably he was hoping for something else. And maybe we have a sort of 0.1 case similar here, luckily, the uh, with, of course, significant, significantly less consequences. In terms of uh, human losses and everything.
0: Sergei Kov's reforms. I know that's something you mentioned in the article. And that was another question I had actually, is you talk about his tenure as as being the time when Russia imposed institutional changes that improved Russian military capabilities. And did you describe it as sort of a deviation from what's been standard across the Putin era? I mean, I remember reading about Sergei kind of being this like civilian outsider who's coming in and doing stuff, and then he has a love affair and some problems, and he's, he's, he, he leaves sort of in disgrace. But what was so special about his tenure? What makes him as a defense minister stand out?
1: His tenure was special, first, because he was the first real civilian minister of defense in Russia's history. Then second, that he implemented very radical changes that a lot of people inside the Ministry of Defense and among the military service members in the defense industry and at the FSB, for example, strongly objected. They really like disliked. Some criticism was fair because, he, of course, he made mistakes. And the way he implemented these decisions, especially during the first two years, were quite radical and disrespectful, just on basic human level, to, to senior generals, for instance. But also because, yes, it, he broke down... He broke this tradition, this more conservative tradition, post-Soviet kind of past dependency that existed in the Russian military, and made the Russian military basically created these structural changes that made the Russian military more agile, flexible, adaptable. Basically, the, he created the foundation of the armed forces we saw in, uh, in the annexation of Crimea, in eastern Ukraine, the, like, the first, the semi-limited invasion in Syria. Basically, what, what started all this fuss about the growing Russian military capabilities. This is the Serikov built the foundation for that. And also he kicked off the rearmament program that Shoigu was to, was to implement. And that's important because he basically helped to lobby for this trillions of rubles to bring new tanks, aircrafts, missiles to the Russian military. And then Shoigu kind of got this package and had to keep going and kind of implementing and bringing, bringing stuff to the forces. So yeah. His ousting was also quite spectacular. He was charged with, I think, with corruption, with multiple cases of corruption, and especially people around him. He was also obviously they started to, what the word here, to, um, you know, to, delegitimize him in state media, hmm. show his like love affairs and everything. And then when Putin came back to the Kremlin, he could fire him. Well, not fire him, but because of the criminal cases. He he. Made him resign. Mm-hmm. So and that's how his kind of public famous tenure ended. Right. But then, in fact, he he didn't go to prison. He he was appointed to a very nice position in the Russian defense industry. So he basically he he's he's been living a nice life since right. his uh, dismissal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Another thing that you write in the article is that Putin has been, and this is something I've seen many places described in various sort of different ways, but it's usually the kind of the same vibe: is that Putin has been reluctant to use his political capital to perform his sort of role as a moderator or an intervening force between like warring clans and so on. And that when it comes to civil military relations, he hasn't stepped in when he should have. And this is the most dramatic example of him failing to do this is the Wagner mutiny. Do you think that Putin learned his lesson or do you think he, based on what you've seen, because obviously he's he met with Prigozhin, Prigozhin is apparently in St. Petersburg today meeting with some of the visiting African dignitaries he's not when the whole thing was happening i thought okay prigozhin's going to be murdered by the end of this they're going to kill him and then when they sent him to belarus it was like well i guess he's sort of imprisoned in belarus but no he's still you know going around Wh- what do you think in terms of putin and his reluctance to spend his political capital to mediate in these conflicts specifically in the civil military sense do you think he's he's learned a lesson of some kind here, or he's just going about everything the same way?
1: Yeah, my, my answer would be with that we don't know, because <laughs> indeed what's happening during the last months, it's uh, really puzzling. Mm-hmm. Because I always expected that Prigozhin would be at least imprisoned or something would happen to him. Maybe not now, but at least there would be signs that they're kind of going after him. And now we see this absolutely bizarre from the military perspective, pictures of him in St. Petersburg, right? I just can't imagine what some generals think of, uh, well, of Their place in the system if uh, a person who basically killed 13 of their pilots uh, is now free and hanging around with African leaders. Uh, but if you, going back to your question about Putin's role, well, even if I get the fact that Russia has become, has been becoming, a, and now is a personal dictatorship, even if it was a democracy, still in the civil military domain and military, in the military, this, there's a very important vertical chain of command that's kind of comes from top to bottom, the Commander-in-Chief as the President, and then Minister of Defense, Chief of the General Staff, and going down to the individual soldiers. And then, considering that the Russian system is very personalized, the role of the Commander-in-Chief, hence the President, is very important, both in, for example, regulating defense affairs, de- regulating this conflict, basically making decisions, decision, setting up coordination bodies so that people like, argue pragmatically And without uh, huge, uh, huge uh, conflicts that kind of spilling over into the political sphere. And of course, the same in the, on the battlefield, the president has to control and it's his job to keep the system functioning. And well, the PMC Wagner under precaution, it was like an alien body in the Russian civil military relations, very new. It has been like this completely informal and but also quite powerful paramilitary force only connected through some vague channels to the political leadership, and there was some kind of coordination with the official military. And this created friction or tensions, especially when he started criticizing the Minister of Defense and the Chief of the General Staff. Again, military generals can also even agree with this criticism. But the fact of speaking out and going public, politicizing this, this is something completely inappropriate. Again, as I said before, for the military, you, you have to obey, you may have your own opinion. If you disagree, resign. Well, not difficult, but at least before the mobilization, or there are informal ways, you know, you can slow down the implementation of orders, the execution of orders, but going public is something that is both legally institutional, but also culturally something that yeah, like you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And it all ended up in a mutiny and crisis of crises, right? And, and this is a failure of Putin's leadership as a commander-in-chief, but also a huge blow to the Russian civil-military relations. Well, because of losses, because of the break of the chain of command and uh, criticism towards the military leadership. And now we see that this, I actually think, I, in my view, this crisis is ongoing because, again, there is no retribution. Prigozhin is free. Wagnerites Wagner, are, apparently, they're going to Africa from Belarus. And and so uh, what's next, right? How, right. how, how can this conflict... Settle down.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to pivot now to this, this new legislation that just passed the State Duma. They adopted this legislation that will create new armed formations that they're calling specialized enterprises. And it seems like it's a cross between like a private security company and then maybe even like Russia's territorial defenses. Once the law is in effect, the president will have the power to order governors to create these things, and then the National Guard will apparently arm them. How do you see these new units fitting into the larger picture? Because it seems like, on one hand, it gives the National Guard even another tool in the aftermath of the mutiny, and they've been getting, you know now they have heavy equipment, and so it seems like it's part of just building up the National Guard in one in one respect, but it's also strange. Like, why are the authorities going about it like this? Why are they creating another weird sort of hybrid group?
1: What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think lots of people, I saw this on Twitter, lots of people immediately saw this as feudalization of Russia as the kind of first signs of right, Russia's Right, there, there was the, the,
0: the, something like it's the, it, they're going backwards
1: from, from communism to capitalism and feudalism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would say that I'm worried about this as well, but I think it's still more, we have to see more, especially when it comes to the government regulations of this amendment. So just a brief overview how this Russian... Legal system functions. They introduced a very quick amendment during the last hearing uh, of changes to the laws on defense and everything, where they kind of put this paragraph on territorial state owned enterprises, defense, like military enterprises. And it's quite vague. It's, it's not that some stuff is not yet even specialized. For example, they say that the body that gives them weapons is like something federal, designated federal body or something. I think, but I think most people assume it's uh, the National Guard. Right. So we'll see more when the government rolls out its own regulations. Mm-hmm. In my view, this is this is indeed quite dangerous in terms of yeah giving more, at least on the informal level, kind of capital to the regional leaders, because even if we assume that this control formally would be, for example, in the hands of the National Guard, operational control, or maybe the headquarters of special military operation, right, from Rostov, so the military officers will command this state-owned private military, of state-owned military companies, Still, these enterprises will be formed with people from the regions. They would bond as locals. Another important aspect that the provision, although it's specified it's a federal budget, but also the regions will be responsible for some part of logistics, for example, maybe housing and of these personnel, especially because when it comes to these state-owned enterprises, if they are formed on the regional level, it is actually the region that is legally responsible for their operations. And, like, you know, material, logistical support and everything. This gives more opportunity for regional leaders to, again, as Prigozhin did, as we see with with his mercenaries, who at least some of them are personally loyal to him. So this gives opportunities for regional leaders as well. But I think the government, the Kremlin's rationale here is to formalize the territorial defense forces and to create an organization that will let the government give to the territorial defense forces' defense and streamline operation control over them, because before that, basically they did form some territorial defense units, but legally they couldn't give them weapons. And mm-hmm. of course, what can they do? The bait dance or something?
0: They don't have weapons. The territorial the territorial defenses. What are they carrying? Like batons, flashlights? Like what are they? What do they
1: have? Who are these people? It's <laughs> yeah. This is also quite vague. Uh, I think they they formed these units, but they. This, this here, I'm not sure. I think they haven't been really kind of deployed to the borders. Like, they yeah, like,
0: Belgrade Belgo- has, like, three or 6,000 of these guys in, like, mm-hmm. one or two different units. And, like, I've never and, seen a pic- picture of them. Like, what do they look Do they have yeah. uniforms? Like, what do they look like?
1: <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, we haven't seen them in action, especially when, for example, even when the Ukrainian forces conducted some uh, incursions in, the, in Russia's proper and probably they were just training the training fields, uh, shooting practices, some tactical... Even though moves, they can't everything. technically have weapons, they probably were... On the shooting uh, shooting ranges, yeah. probably, I guess, somehow yeah. informally, because even like school kids can sometimes shoot from <laughs> military <laughs> weapons. It, more guess. and more, it seems, yeah. yeah, yeah. So okay. was, at least on the shooting ranges, yeah, I think it was possible. So now they have this legal option and the National Guard probably will be responsible for giving them weapons. So yeah, uh, some people also claim that they are sort of in... Anti-rebellion force, Yeah, I doubt, because of their just capabilities. Right. Well, you know, in order to stop a rebellion you need to have some real people with real like, military special forces probably experience, mm-hmm. especially if they're from the region and founded by the regional authorities, probably they will be just located within the region. And so it's just administratively speaking, I think it would be quite difficult to use them if there is another mutiny like Precautions mm-hmm. 1. But, so what, what, we, example, what would they use them for then? For, in my view, again, what, based on the information we have now, it's for the territorial defense in the borders, close to Ukraine, mm-hmm. Belgrade, Kursk Rostov and all other regions, Yeah. but also there was a special provision for Moscow. Moscow can form a and legally has formed, even, apparently. has formed apparently, yes. And uh, probably can form even more without president's approval. Right. Now, this is also quite interesting, but. Here, I'll have to go then in criminology and probably some maybe personal relationship. Between <laughs> right, and Putin right, yeah. Should, 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 I don't
0: know. <laughs> yeah, if we were going to yeah. make a movie, we'd have to figure out how many stars to tattoo on, his, on the character's body or something. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.